You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. Please take your Bibles, I hope you have them, or a device, and you can flip to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16, as we continue on in our series on heaven and on eternity, and we look again today beyond the horizon and beyond the clouds to think about heaven and eternity and the day when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. And we'll look at next week on what happens when Jesus returns. But until then, how do we keep looking to what is to arrive? And we really have to face the skeleton skeleton key of the afterlife. And really what happens, what happens after we die? What is, what is the present heaven like right now? And as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And we'll begin in Luke 16, verse 19. 16, 19. And we hear from our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and at Lazarus' side. And Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your life you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come also into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if so much should rise from the dead. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. Help us to hear your word. Help help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is your word says to us about what awaits us on the other side of this life. Lord, you know the hearts of everyone here, so would you by your divine spirit, meet us and change us. Cause some of us to be born again and would cause some of us to receive great encouragement and great joy for what you have prepared for those who love you. And it's in the mighty name of your son that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I just want to tell you some book titles. To heaven and back. A doctor's extraordinary account of her death, heaven, angels, and life again. A true story. Proof of heaven. 
and neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife. My journey to heaven, what I saw and how it changed me. Waking up in heaven, a true story of brokenness, heaven, and life again. My time in heaven, a true story of dying and coming back. 90 minutes in heaven. Heaven is for real, bestseller and a movie. And lastly, this is really one of the first ones of this kind, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, a remarkable account of miracles, angels, and life beyond this world by Kevin and Alex Malarkey. And yes, Malarkey is their real last name. (laughs) A little foreshadowing there. On the back of the book by the Malarkeys, it says this. It's on the back of the book jacket. In 2004, Kevin Malarkey and his six-year-old son, Alex, suffered a horrific car accident. The impact from the crash paralyzed Alex. And medically speaking, it was unlikely that he could survive. I think Alex has gone to be with Jesus, a friend told the stricken dad. But two months later, Alex awoke from a coma with an incredible story to share. Of events at the accident scene and in the hospital while he was unconscious. Of the angels that took him through the gates of heaven itself. Of the unearthly music that sounded just terrible to a six-year-old. And most amazing of all, of meeting and talking to Jesus. The boy who came back from heaven is the true story. The true story of an ordinary boy's most extraordinary journey. As you see heaven and earth through Alex's eyes, you'll come away with new insights on miracles, life beyond this world, and the power of a father's love. That book once sold for almost $20. That book's available now for sale for pennies. And here's why. Last year, Alex, now a teenager, wrote an open letter saying, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible, and people have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own, so that you can be forgiven, may you learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. And those who market these materials must be called to, re- to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. It's a brave young man. So what should we think about books like his? I think we should think exactly what he said. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is enough. Don't let your fascination and a right fascination, and a right interest in the afterlife, don't let that be ultimately informed and guided by anything other than the Word of God and definitely not the fancies of publishers. There is not a single account in the Bible of someone dying, coming back to life, and then them telling us and describing what they saw. What we do have in the Bible are people giving their visions of the heavenly realm that were given to them by God and then telling us what they saw because God told them to write it down. John, write down what you're about to see. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel, write down, O son of man, what you are about to see. Isaiah, transported to the throne room of God. And Paul, all throughout his letters, he describes for us, because he has been trained by Jesus himself, he is describing what heaven will be like for us. But listen, church, even more. The Apostle Paul was given a vision of heaven. And look at what he says about it in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 2. 
He's speaking very humbly about himself, and he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul didn't even die. He doesn't even know if his body was transported there or if it was a vision. So it was, so that gives us a real insight into what is the afterlife like. So Paul, he says, it felt so physical and so real, I'm not even sure if I was in my body or not. I'm not even sure if I broke the space and time barrier and went up to the third heaven or if it was just my mind or just my vision granted to me. That makes me suspect that our layover in the present heaven until the new earth and our new bodies, there'll be a lot of continuity and a lot of compatibility until we get our resurrected bodies. But notice what Paul says about all of this. He says, I was there. I saw things and I heard things and I can't tell you about it. Man may not utter these things. So you see the contrast? You have dozens of books written for profit, trying to make money, and you have uh, the Apostle Paul who went there and says, I can't tell you about it. And I doubt it would change Paul's mind if he knew it could become a New York Times bestseller. Jesus tells us in this parable what the Bible says about the afterlife is enough. Look at the end of Luke 16. Look at verse 30. So this rich man in this parable that Jesus is describing, is in this, the story Jesus has made up with a point, he says, send Lazarus back from the dead, send him to my family and convince him that they, convince them they should repent and they should come. I don't want them to go to Hades. And look at what Father Abraham, according to Jesus, what he would say in this scenario. Verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Bible's enough. The Bible's enough. We don't need the stories of little kids. We don't need the stories of neurosurgeons. That will not convince us to repent, and that will not convince us to have more joy. Jesus says, you have Moses and the prophets, and now we can amplify it even more. You have Genesis to Revelation. You have the great testimony of God. So brothers and sisters, do not put more stock or try to find more encouragement in what can ultimately not be trusted, but in what can, the word of God and what God has decided to reveal to us. And, and this is enough. I trust God's testimony over what heaven looks like. So what happens when we die? What happens if we are like Lazarus or if we are like the rich man? The unavoidable event that's coming for us all because of sin in this world. We learn a lot from this parable. We get a lot of glimpses of life after death. Look at verse 22 and 23. Verse 22 and 23. 23. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. This is Lazarus. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So both die and both go to different places. The rich man went to Hades. It's the Old Testament equivalent of, of Sheol. And Lazarus went to Abraham's side, paradise. Also the Old Testament equivalent of Sheol. Because in the Old Testament, this is going to be 
probably new for some of us. I know this was new for me. In the Old Testament, before the death and resurrection of Jesus, everyone went to Sheol. Everyone went to the place of the dead. And remember, that's when Jesus tells this parable, before his death and resurrection. So it holds continuity from the Old Testament understanding. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, this is Ecclesiastes 9.10, do with all your might, because where you are going, there is neither work or there is neither thought nor knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Solomon says, we're, we're all going to Sheol in the Old Testament. So that was a great understanding that when everyone dies, everyone goes to Sheol, the place of the dead. They're buried, then their soul, their spirit goes to the other realm. And in Sheol, in this place of the dead, there are really two areas. There is the place where torment occurs, where you see where the rich man went. There's torment in English, those who don't follow Yahweh, those who don't follow God. And then there is paradise. There's Abraham's side. There is the good place. And that's where the rich man went. And that's where Moses went. And that's where David went. It's all under the category of Sheol, but there's a good side and there is a bad side. The Old Testament saints didn't go to heaven as we think of heaven, the current heaven. They didn't go there yet. They're all there now. We're going to talk about that in a second. But if you really think about it, you think scripturally, they could not have gone there because the blood of bulls and goats and rams was never enough. Only the blood of Jesus was enough to tear the veil. Only blood of Jesus was enough to take them to the heavenly places. And this is, not, this is definitely not a purgatory understanding like in Catholicism that teaches there's kind of a, a holding tank for the dead where a purification occurs and then you're ready. That is not true. That is nowhere in our Bible. And that goes against the gospel of grace and the work of Christ. That Christ is enough. That Christ's blood, when he said it is finished, it is enough for us to enter into eternity. But look at what we can learn from this parable. A lot about the quality of the afterlife. There's torment in Hades, verse 23. You can feel things. Our bodies are in the ground, but we have some kind of physical state, some kind of intermediate state from this earth, waiting for the new earth. We have some kind of physicality. Or even he could lift his eyes. Some way he can see. Some way he can feel. Sheol, Hades, this present hell. And Gehenna is the lake of fire, the, the, hell, the future hell to come. But here, even Abraham, Lazarus, the rich man, they have a voice. They have a conversation. So you're intelligent still. And people ask all the time, will I, will I remember what happens when I go to heaven? Well I, well, I remember what happened on the earth. Well, what do we learn from here? It, this, this poor man, this rich man, they both remember things. The rich man, he remembers his family. I have five brothers. Will you send Lazarus, Abraham, to them and, and tell them to repent? He feels emotions. He wants his family to be saved. He recognizes Lazarus. He looks from afar off and calls him Lazarus. Abram, will you tell Lazarus to come and dip his finger in some water and dip it in my mouth for I'm in anguish? So he recognizes Lazarus. We'll recognize each other. We'll remember our family. And in Revelation, John tells us that all, all these martyrs, all those who died for Christ are gathered around the throne. And they're asking Jesus, do you remember this? How long, Lord, till you avenge our blood? That tells us a ton about heaven. 
How long till you avenge our blood? What does it tell? One, it tells us they know what's happening on earth. They know our, our blood hasn't been avenged yet. And also in Luke 15, Jesus says, there's a party in heaven when, in the presence of the angels whenever someone repents. So those in heaven know when you placed your faith in Christ and they celebrated. It doesn't say the angels. It says in the presence of the angels, in that heavenly realm, there was a party when you repented. So they, in heaven, they know what's happening on earth. Think about the martyrs. They remember how they died. And you're thinking, but I thought there wouldn't be any sadness. That would be a tragic thing to remember how you, how you died. Well, you can tell from the martyrs in Revelation 5 and 6 that they're not weeping, but they do remember. And all the passages that I'm sure you're thinking of now, well, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and he's going to comfort us. That's true. That's in the new earth to come. That's later in the book of Revelation. But they're in the present heaven. They're remembering how we died and they're waiting for God's wrath to be executed on those who killed them. And so that even tells us too that when we die and we go to the present heaven, we, we don't become super geniuses. You don't all of a sudden go, oh, that's how you do algebra. You don't get downloaded everything in this world because they're asking a question, how long until you do this, Lord? See, they don't know everything. And also their memory banks aren't wiped. It's not like the men in black thing, and you're wiped. They remember, but they also don't know everything. So there, there is that, that balance there. The martyrs, it says they're given robes to wear. Lazarus was at Abraham's side. So there's, there's still, I'm still my person. I'm still who I am. I can stand next to somebody. There's still continuity kind of, and they're given robes to wear. So their bodies, these martyrs, they're in the ground. But how are they given robes to wear? Some kind of physical state that we have where we can exist in heaven. And think about Jesus right now. He is in a glorified human body, and somehow he's not falling through heaven. There is still some kind of ability to exist there and to breathe and to ha- and think Elijah. Elijah never died. He rode in a chariot of fire to heaven, and Enoch never died. He was taken right up to God. And so where is heaven? Is it just up? Is Hades down? It's not simply up or down. It is another dimension altogether. There is more to this universe than what we can see with our eyes. Do you remember in Acts when Stephen is being stoned, being pelted with rocks and they're trying to kill him, and he looks up and he sees Jesus standing on his throne? No one else could see it. He saw it. God allowed him to see what's happening in the heavenly places. There is the physical Jesus standing on a physical throne, glorified human body. He allowed him to see what we normally cannot see. And in 2 Kings, this blows me away. In 2 Kings, Elisha and Gehazi are about, they're being surrounded by another enemy army and they're terrified and Gehazi doesn't know what to do, but Elisha is confident. And Elisha prays, listen to 2 Kings. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his, Gehazi's eyes that he may see. See what? So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Gehazi couldn't see it. Elisha could see it. And then God opens up Gehazi's eyes and he can see there is an angelic army around us and chariots of fire ready to fight. Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven, just listen to this. He says, it could be argued that these horses 
and chariots, these angelic warriors, exist beside us in our universe, we, we are normally blind to them. Or they may be a, in a universe beside ours that happens, that opens up into ours so that angelic beings and horses apparently can move between universes. That's incredible. Incredible. That there is more to what meets our eyes. You remember Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis? He sees this dream, this vision. What does he see? He looks and he sees a stairway, a ladder, some kind of stairs where angels are coming up and down this portal and arriving on earth and going back up into the heavenly places. This other dimension being entered into. I don't know if you've seen Stranger Things and the Upside Down. This is seeing the right side up. That when we die, to where do we go? After the resurrection of Jesus, believers, Christians, we don't go to Sheol or Hades. We don't go to the holding place of the dead. I love Psalm 49. It captures the longing of the Old Testament believers to be released from Sheol, to be released from Abraham's side. Psalm 49, 15, the sons of Korah wrote this, and they said, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he, for he will receive me. Do you see the difference? He will ransom me from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. So they know we go to Sheol and then a day will come where I will be ransomed and I will be received by God. They're longing for this time. So when does it happen? When will they be ransomed from the power of Sheol? Ransom is the key word. How are the sons of Korah and Moses and David released from the place of the dead? when they were ransomed by the cross of Christ. When Jesus died, when his blood was shed, when his life was poured out of him, and when he rose again from the dead in our place for our sins, he ransomed for himself a people for God, a people for his own possession. Jesus died, and when he died, he descended into Hades. Not hell. Hell hasn't been created yet, but he descended into Sheol, into the place of the dead. And remember what he told the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today we are going to Abraham's side. We are going down into Sheol, and I have the keys of Hades and death, Revelation 1. And the gates of Hades will not stop me from building my church. I will descend into Sheol, Jesus says, and I will capture all of the Old Testament saints, and I will bring them with me into the heavenly places. Jesus gives us heaven. Jesus went down and he gathered up all the Old Testament saints. And when he ascended, he took them to heaven with him. That's why, that's why Peter says that he preached to the spirits who are now in prison, these demons who were already captured in Sheol. Jesus went down and he preached to them by gathering up the people of God and saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was promised to come. And this is in Ephesians 4. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He brought them out with him. He gave gifts to people, his church. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He led the captives out. As David says in the Psalms, Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. 
David knows, I know you won't leave me here forever. You will ransom me from the power of Sheol. And David, just think about King David. He's now in the present heaven with Moses, with Abraham, with Peter, with James and John and with Augustine and with Martin Luther and with Charles Spurgeon and with Rich Mullins and with Jim Elliott, John Stott. I mean, on and on. Our friends and family members who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. They have been ransomed by Christ and now they are with the Lord in heaven. Their faith is now sight. What they used to only be able to see with the eyes of faith, they now see in full. The Bible says that only the righteous inherit eternal life. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we probably at some level feel, well, I'm not righteous. I've sinned. I've done bad things. I've lied. I've stolen. I've cheated. So how, how, how will I not be abandoned into Hades? How will I receive eternal life? Grace made the way. You are not saved by your good works. You are not saved by trying to be a good person. You're not trying to outweigh your good, try to outweigh your bad with more good. Only by Christ, who is the righteous Son of God. Only by Christ, who is perfect, who is sinless, and who died in the place of sinners, as 1 Peter 3.18 says. And then he died that he might bring us to God. So when we die as Christians, we die to Jesus, and it is far better. So when we die... We are with Christ, with God. We go right to the Lord. Because Jesus, when he descended, when he died, he infected the place of death. He infected death when he died. And now Hades cannot stomach Christ and all of those who are united to him. Now hell, Hades, has a gag reflex over those who know Christ. And it can't receive us. Now when we die, we go, right to the Lord, as Paul says in Romans 14. For none of us lives to himself. This means if you are a Christian, Jesus is your Lord. You live to him. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. We live for his glory. We live for his name. And if we die, we die to the Lord. For his glory, for his fame, and also directionally to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. The gospel, his death, resurrection. Why? That he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. If you believe Jesus died in your place and for your sins, and you follow him today, whoever believes in him, he is the, your Lord, whether that you are alive or whether your body is in the ground. L listen to what this verse is teaching you, that your body, when it loses its heartbeat, it doesn't lose the lordship of Christ over you. Yet your body, your lungs aren't pumping, but you are alive with Christ. You have died to him. When you die, you go right to him. So just let me ask you, everyone in this room, do you know what will happen to you when you breathe your last? Do not allow a sliver of doubt to be there to stay. Let this be resolved in your life. When you die, will you die to the Lord? Or when you die, will you die to Hades? Will you die to the place of the dead? 
You can't put this off. Turn and trust in Jesus today if you have not. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Believe that he did die for you and that he did live again for you. What other hope is there? What other hope do you have? And we as Christians, when when we die, we don't grieve those who don't have hope. And I love that the Bible says, it doesn't say we don't grieve. No, we grieve. Jesus grieved at the death of his friend Lazarus. Even knowing that I'm about to raise him from the dead, he still wept. The Bible says we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. So even our grief has a gospel element to it. We have hope. We know that if they are in Christ, we will see them again. And we know that if they are in Christ, they are not disappointed. They are not wishing they were back. Paul knows this. This is why why death isn't to be feared. And also at the same time, death is not to be oddly celebrated. Death is not a good thing. It It is actually unnatural for us to die. It's a result of sin. It's a result of the curse. This is why by the gospel, it will now be supernatural for us to live again. So death is not to be feared. Death is not to be oddly celebrated. It's to be seen rightly in faith, as Paul says in Philippians 1. For me, Paul says, living is Christ and dying is gain. Gain. How can he say it is gain? Here's why. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. This means I've got meaningful stuff to do. I can serve the church. I can can love others. This is important. But he says, I don't know which one I should choose. I'm pressured by both. I want to live a meaningful life. I, I want to do things for the glory of God on this earth. But look at what he says. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. So you feel kind of the contrast and the tension of what he's getting at. He says, I have meaningful stuff to do. I have meaningful ministry. But to depart and be with Christ, oh, that's far better. I mean, far better is the word he uses. Is that how we honestly feel of life after death? That it's far better to be with Jesus? Or is there a tinge still inside of us? Oh my gosh, I would love to be married though. I, I, would, I would love to see this happen with my kids or I, I, I would love to, you know, get into this kind of stage of life or I would love for this kind of thing to happen or and we can go on and on and on and on and on. But Paul says, and that's not to discount any of those things. Sometimes we can feel like we've got to be super spiritual and be like, oh, those don't matter. No, Paul says, I have meaningful stuff to do. There's fruitful work for me. So these are God-glorifying things to want to experience and to want to have. But Paul says, to be with Christ is better. That doesn't mean these are bad. They're good. It's good to want to walk your kid down the aisle. It's good to want to sit on a rocking chair with your spouse in your 80s. It is good to want those things. But what is better? So this is not meant to minimize those things. This is meant to maximize our joy and love in King Jesus Christ. Paul's thrill is to be with Jesus. This is what he calls far better. To depart and to be with Christ. To be with Christ. Sometimes we think of heaven, and some of the first things we think of, to depart and to be with grandma. And that is a blessing of heaven, if she is a believer. To depart and to talk to the apostle Paul. That'll be a great thing. To depart and to see the highlight reel of David killing Goliath. That will be awesome. 
to depart and see how God spoke the universe into existence, seeing his sports center highlights. It'll be great to see. But notice that's not Paul's ultimate joy, to depart and be with Christ. Is Jesus the central joy of your life? If he is, he'll be the central joy of your afterlife. And I suspect if Jesus is not the central joy of your life right now, he will not be the central joy of your afterlife, which means you have a very scary afterlife. Hades waiting for you. For you wouldn't, if Jesus is not the central joy of your life, heaven will be hell for you. So is your great thrill to be with Jesus? That's what he calls far better. And notice all of those things, seeing grandma, Seeing friends and family, they are there because of Jesus. Jesus is the reason. Being able to experience and to be able to talk with Paul and Moses, they are there because of Jesus. And and we are there because of Jesus. Jesus is the common denominator and central figure of history and of afterlife and of heaven. Is our love for Jesus greater than looking forward to all the neat and glorious things of heaven? Is your love for Jesus greater than all the great and glorious things of heaven? If it's not, we've got to repent and say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me to really believe that dying is gain and help me to see that this is far better to be with you, Jesus. We must stand on guard against detaching Jesus from all the joys of heaven. Paul right now, is where it is far better to be with the risen Christ. And so are all of your family members, all of your friends who know Jesus and have put their faith in him. Their faith is now sight. And they do see it is far better to be with Jesus because Jesus is better than all I could imagine. Jesus is more satisfying and more amazing and more powerful and more loving and more kind and more gentle and more open and more friendly than I could ever imagine. Whatever the present heaven will be like, are there really streets of gold? Will I be able to fish until the new earth? Whatever it will be like. When we fall asleep on this earth and we see him, we won't be disappointed. I love how the New Testament describes death of Christians in a lot of places. It describes it as they've fallen asleep. A great metaphor for us. This is what it really looks like. We're we're just taking a really long nap. This isn't soul sleep. It's not like we're just kind of pods just waiting. Our bodies are dead, but we are alive. We're taking a long nap in a blanket of dirt, and we're having a sweet reality. And when the alarm clock of the trumpet sounds, we rise in our new bodies, and we'll be on the new earth forever with Jesus. That's why I keep calling heaven the the one that we usually think of when we think of heaven. I keep calling it the present heaven, because there is a future heaven. The present heaven is where we go now. We go right to the Lord, right where he is in the present heaven. But there is a future heaven to come. When heaven comes down in the new Jerusalem and the, and the earth is made new, that's where we'll actually live forever. The present heaven is not your eternal home. The new earth is. Randy Alcorn helps us when he likens the present heaven. It's like a, it's like a layover to your final destination. I've taken the flight from Houston to Montana, Bozeman, Montana. And usually you have to, 
not usually, always, you have to stop in Denver on this one flight we take. It's always Houston, Denver, Bozeman. If I'm in the airport, I'm getting my Jamba Juice, and I'm hanging out, and someone says, hey, where are you headed? And I say, oh, I'm going to Montana. Do you think the, someone else on that flight would be like, you're a liar. We're going to Denver. Like, well, yes, I know. I'm, I'm going to Denver. It's, it's the layover. I'm going there. I'm not staying there. I have a final arrival. I'm going to Denver, but I'm not going to Denver. When we die, we are going to heaven, the present heaven, but we are not going to heaven forever. We are going, our final destination is the new earth. We will live on new earth forever, the future heaven in resurrected bodies. When heaven comes down, the earth is restored. So brothers and sisters, heaven is for real. Resurrection is for real. The new earth is for real and we're headed for it with Jesus. And we don't need a kid's story to tell us. The Bible works just fine. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.